Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. How's it going, Chris? Good to talk again.、Um, every podcast we record, we seem to introduce it by saying that we live through very interesting times, and I think you can certainly say that again today, because、um, if you look at what's happening on financial markets, there's a lot of volatility there. Equity markets are having a real seesaw at the moment.、Um, Bitcoin is down 28.4 percent year to date. Ethereum is down 34.7 percent,、um, but Bitcoin itself is up ten percent since the lows on Sunday. So, Bitcoin generally、um, behaving in a very very volatile fashion, but markets generally very volatile at the moment.、Uh, there is a U.S. Federal Reserve's policymaking committee, the FOMC,、um, is announcing a decision tomorrow on interest rates, and the expectation is that rates will increase. That's creating market nervousness. Uh, the Russian situation continues to boil over. News yesterday that the Pentagon has eight and a half thousand U.S. troops on alert to move them to Europe if the Russians、uh, start to misbehave in a serious way. So lo- lots of stuff going on, lots of nervousness, lots of volatility, and、um, we certainly do live in interesting times. Do you think that this is the beginning of something significant? Well, I think it already is significant, Jim, because as you say, the、uh, crypto space has、uh, displayed an awful lot of volatility, and volatility highly correlated with those falls in equity markets. Equity markets are going down more than up.、Uh, it was an extraordinary day on Monday of this week when, at one point, the Nasdaq was was I think when I looked about four percent off on the day, and then finished the day. Um, on the closing bell, slightly up. So equities are proving to be that volatile asset class that we've always known them to be. Equities, as you say, are being disturbed by a number of factors: Russia and the Ukraine being one. High inflation, persistent worries over what that means for interest rates, is another major factor. And the other, perhaps 
less significant but not insignificant is that the the bears have come out of the woods. We mentioned him last time, uh, a guy called Jeremy Grantham of uh, asset management firm GMO, uh, a Boston-based uh, prominent asset manager. Uh, Woolley, um, GMO and Grantham have been perma-bears, as it's called in the marketplace. I think he's been bearish uh, more on than off uh, since 2011, quite frankly, um, for most of the bull market. And I think these sorts of thoughts are worth exploring just for a second because it, it speaks to how difficult it is to think about equity markets in the round at the best of times. And at the moment, it certainly isn't the best of times. Grantham has been bearish about equities, particularly US equities, because pure, almost purely because of valuation. He looks at various metrics of what the stock market is worth, what he thinks it should be worth, compares the two, and always reaches the conclusion, nearly always reaches the conclusion that the stock market is overvalued. Um, and that, that's the problem with valuation. Being a value investor, working out what something is intrinsically worth, and then looking at what the market says and looking at the gap between the two, uh, historically at least, has been an incredibly miserable experience because stocks in the US, uh, if not elsewhere, have for years uh, looked to be expensive. Uh, on the conventional measures that people use, and some unconventional ones, they've been signaling this for a long period of time. So anybody that invests their money uh, on the sole basis of traditional valuation uh, have run into trouble and they would have lost their investors a lot of money. Uh, value is having a day in the sun. And again, historically, that investment factor, as we call it, uh, does work from time to time. Historically, going back many, many years, it worked very, very well as a factor. But over the last decade, at least, if not longer, when it's worked, it's been for a very, very short period of time. And so it, it's very, very difficult. Grantham's perspective is that the market has been boosted beyond bubble territory, by the Federal Reserve's money printing. That clearly is coming to an end. He and lots of others believes with these interest rate hikes that we think are on the way. So therefore the bubble is in the process of bursting. And he thinks that on those valuation measures, the US stock market deserves to fall by 50%. Um, and who knows, he may be right. I'm gonna pin my colors to the mast and say, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong for a number of reasons. One is, I think that we should be looking at valuation in a different way now. I think that we should be looking at the way in which different factors other than valuation also affect equity markets for long periods of time. And we should be intellectually honest enough to, to say that whilst valuation is important, uh, other things clearly are important to markets, particularly over short periods. And by short periods, I mean a number of years. And if, if, a number of years is part of your investment horizon, then you've got to take account of these other factors, even though your models, your financial theory says that things like momentum and liquidity uh, shouldn't work. The fact is that they do. And we need, we need to recognize that. Uh, for other reasons, I think that he, he's wrong, but I, I certainly accept that in the short period, all of this year, for example, the US equity market could be in for a lot of trouble. And I think that the most important thing to say is that over the very short period, by mean by which I mean a year or two, uh, nobody has much of an idea where the equity market will go. And I think we should all, you know, as financial forecasters, we should be honest about that. 
The final thing I would say is that whereas I don't know what the US equity market will do, if it does fall for a lot, there is another side to, to that equation. It involves a bit of financial jargon, a bit of financial theory. And it comes down to what every investor should be utterly focused on when it comes to thinking about their investments. One is time horizon. And I've talked a little about that already. The other is expected returns. And when stock markets are falling, holding everything else equal, as we economists like to say, and I think it's it's relevant to say that, it's correct to say that at the moment, uh, expected returns are actually going up. I know it doesn't feel like that when stock markets are going down, but when stock markets are going down, valuations are improving. And to the extent that valuations do predict returns, then expected returns are going up. So if you've got a long enough time horizon, I would say, don't worry about this. It could get very, very nasty indeed. If you've got some cash, hold on to it, put it back in when the markets are getting very nasty. At least that would be advice I'd give myself if I was in the lucky position of having cash. Um, but if I'm a long, that classic long-term investor thinking about my pension, uh, you know what I'm going to be getting a decade or more into the future, I wouldn't be too concerned about this because I do think that the stock market is still the best place for your money. Right, Chris. F- fascinating stuff. Um, if I had a granny, I certainly wouldn't like to have her in cryptocurrency at the moment, um, given that level of volatility. Um, and I would agree with you on the long-term equity market stance. Uh, I was intrigued this afternoon, the International Monetary Funds that August Buddy, based in Washington, D.C., has updated its global economic forecast. And remember, the last forecast was back in October at the time of the autumn meetings in Washington. Um, But they've revised their growth forecast today. They've knocked a whole 0.4% or 0.5% actually off global growth. They've revised it down from 4.9 to 4.4%. Two factors driving that. One is China and the impact of real estate difficulties on that economy. Um, and, And I guess the funny thing there is that those real estate difficulties were very obvious last October when the IMF made its last forecast. So, you know, why it was prepared to virtually ignore them at that stage, I have no idea. Uh, But the second reason for the downgrade is what's happening in the United States. Uh, They said they over, um, that they they over expected on Biden's Build Back Better program, that, that fiscal and legislative program to rebuild the US economy. And of course, that is running into all sorts of political difficulties. That's making it very difficult for Biden to deliver uh, the sort of Build Back Better promises that he made. So uh, that's starting to go slightly awry. So as a consequence, uh, US growth revised down. Also, supply side and supply chain difficulties continuing to impact Omicron, obviously having an impact on economic activity. And um, inflation, you know, certainly the IMF was very much of the view that inflation was a very transitory thing and that um, you know, it, it would fade very quickly and wouldn't have a significant impact on anything really. So this is a pretty dramatic um, revision to a global growth forecast by a body such as the IMF. And um, it, it strikes me that a lot of the reasons for the downgrade uh, were reasonably obvious last October as well for a body like the IMF that devotes so much time, resources and attention 
to global economic forecasting. Um, and it's, it's, it's also interesting, you know, on the day that the IMF revises down growth significantly, uh, markets are nervous because they expect the Federal Reserve to start increasing interest rates more aggressively beginning tomorrow. So is, is this a typical stagflationary environment we're in at the moment where global growth is slowing, inflationary pressures building? Um, and is this the ultimate nightmare for policymakers, do you think? Well, I, I, I certainly think it is a nightmare because the, the, the behavior of, of equity markets and other risk assets like crypto will have, will have, <clears throat> excuse me, will have alarmed uh, policymakers and will affect their decision making. And it makes it much, much more difficult to do what it is that they want to do. It's not classic stagflation, but it's certainly a step in that direction. The revisions to the IMF forecasts, particularly, as you say, for both the United States and for China, by IMF and indeed other official forecasters' standards, those revisions have been quite large. Normally, um, we expect we see forecast revisions of a more marginal kind, smaller, and they what I call salami slice their forecasts rather than move in one big jump as they have done today. I've read a somewhat excoriating article on Reuters today about the IMF saying that the, they've made a big boo-boo when it comes to their forecast, because these numbers that are out today uh, are only an update to their late 2021 forecasts. And so not much time has passed since then. And in a way, these big forecast changes are rec- a recognition, argued this article, that the IMF actually got it wrong uh, towards the back end of last year, and it's really correcting a big forecasting mistake. It, the, the article forgave the IMF for getting Biden's fiscal policy wrong. Anybody can make that mistake, went the argument. Um, Biden may have gotten it, his package through. He hasn't, and it doesn't look like he will. Um, but the, the mistake that the IMF has made that Reuters, the Reuters correspondent criticized them for was uh, getting inflation and interest rates wrong. Uh, they swallowed the line, the IMF swallowed the line, hook, line and sinker, that inflation was going to be very temporary and that therefore interest rates uh, or growth killing interest rates wouldn't have to go up quite so much as we now think they will have to. And the ex-chief economist of the IMF a year ago, Olivier Blanchard, was pointing out to anybody that would listen that inflation was going to be more sticky upwards than um, the the IMF and many of us were thinking at the time. And it was an, an unforgivable error on the part of the IMF. And essentially, they just took the Fed's line. And so it's two mistakes. The Fed's made a mistake. The IMF uh, made the same mistake as well. And um, Reuters, at least, uh, think that that was unforgivable. But yeah, we, you know, cutting growth forecasts by a lot, raising inflation forecasts is definitely a step down the stagflation forecast route anyway. And um, we, we need to put that in some kind of context. What they've done is that they've taken global growth down to uh, 4.4% this year. That's down, as you say, a half a percentage point from where they thought it was last autumn. Uh, Growth last year, 2021, was 5.9. So it's a decent enough slowdown, but it's not recession. It's It's not the world economy stagnating. Conventionally, we would think a number around 2% would be a, a definition of a global stagnation. Uh, and we're still twice that level. But if this, if when they revise these forecasts again in the spring, 
um, downwards, then I think that you know we are definitely looking at that stagflation environment. And the 1970s are, are the era that remind us of what stagflation can bring. I certainly don't think we're there yet. My best guess is that we're not going to get to 1970s-style stagflation, but we're certainly making steps in that direction. So, Chris, the moral of the story really is that economic forecasting is bullshit, and anybody that believes an economic forecast is mad. Um, well, yeah, you, we've we've talked about this a lot, and we've both written about this a lot on our Substack site. And I think it's further confirmation that we're right to be skeptical skeptical about economic forecasting. Um, we have to do it. Um, I, I don't think that we should disparage those people in the economics community like the IMF that do economic forecasts because all planning purposes require some view of the future. But I do think that we publicize these forecasts uh, um, incorrectly. And I think the media in particular treats these forecasts very, very inappropriately. They're taken as gospel. The headline numbers are written as if this is what the world economy or this is what the Irish economy is going to do this year and next. And even the forecasters themselves would say, hang on a minute, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is if this, this and this happen, this is what we think will happen to the economy. So it's always very conditional. And if the, the original assumptions prove incorrect, we'd have different forecasts. Those kinds of subtleties and nuances are never reported by the media. So I do have some sympathy for forecasters in the way in which their forecasts are used. I think that perhaps we should not call them forecasts. They are scenarios. They are assumptions. They are best guesses, which we are using for our planning purposes. But when we are planning, whether we are a government or a company or indeed an individual household, we shouldn't base our plans on these point forecasts that growth will be X percentage points next year. We should be aware of um, the range, possible range around these forecasts. Our plans should have contingencies for whether the growth comes in higher or lower than the forecast. And in particular, we should read between the lines or, or in the case of today's IMF forecasts, read explicitly what they're saying about where they think the risks lie. And one of the most interesting lines in the IMS forecast for me today was that they think, and they say it quite explicitly, that the risks to growth, to this central growth number that they've chopped by half a percentage point, are weighted very much to the downside. Downside, okay. Um, interesting. I am reading a book at the moment that I know you read some weeks back, Diane Kyle's book, Cogs and Monsters. And for anybody, I think, who wants to get an insight into the perils of economic forecasting and the bullshit associated with economic forecasting, I think this book is well worth a read, uh, particularly as it is written by a microeconomist rather than a macroeconomist. So um, interesting stuff. Gabriel Malouf, the um, governor of the Central Bank of Ireland, was speaking to the Institute of Directors here in Dublin yesterday remotely. And he was making the point that the uh, Eurozone inflation rate will ease later this year, that as supply chain issues unwind and as energy prices stabilize. And he threw out a number of interesting statistics, which we have all known, but I think they're worth repeating, that gas prices in Europe in 2021 increased by 470%, crude oil by 87%, and coal prices by 140%. And the expectation is that um, household energy bills in the euro area, including Ireland, 
will rise by about 54% in 2022. And Malouf went on to say that it is really important to distinguish between broad-based changes in inflation and what he describes as idiosyncratic temporary relative price changes. It's important to distinguish between those two inflation developments. And um, he says that inflation is going to remain elevated for 2022, but is going to ease. But that in 2023 and 2024, Eurozone inflation is expected to uh, be below the ECB's target of 2%. So here is a central banker, you know, obviously he's on the governing council. Obviously, he's close to the conversation that goes on around the um, ECB table. Um, and, and this is what the ECB still believes. And we had this discussion in last week's podcast where we slightly disagreed. You know, I would certainly be of the view that the ECB is probably behind the curve at the moment. And that I think the surprises with European interest rates could be on the upside rather than on the down. Well, there's not obviously not going to be any downside, but the upside risks um, could be a little bit more significant than the markets currently believe. And before I hand back to you, um, in the context of those energy bills and the expectation for increases in those bills during 2022, um, it is interesting that the Irish government is currently finalising um legislation on giving every household in this country a 100 euro credit on their ESB bill that is going to cost about 241 million uh, euro significant amount of money around that that sort of policy response strikes me as being absolutely extraordinary Um, it is populist politics gone berserk you know the notion that they would give every household in the country 100 euro Okay, there will be some households that a hundred euro credit will be really important. There are a lot of other households that will uh, basically not even notice this credit. So that this, I, I guess, um, bring, brings me back to something I've argued for a long time about the bullshit. Sorry, I keep using that technical term today, but the bullshit associated with this sort of universality of payments. You know, the notion that you give every household, regardless of their means, a hundred euro credit on their ESB bill is populist politics gone absolutely berserk in my view. Yeah, it's hard to disagree. And we could have a discussion about whether universal benefits make any sense or not. Things like uh, people like me um, in both certainly in certainly here in the UK, I get much cheaper transport uh, and other uh, benefits that go with my age rather than with my wealth or with with my income and frankly it doesn't make any fiscal sense to give people like me things like free or cheap transport and other universal benefits they the taxpayers money should and could be much better targeted but these are as you say Jim very populist measures um, and it frankly doesn't make much sense to subsidize every household equally uh, people in f- fuel poverty, they're the ones that should be targeted with these measures. And I know there are other measures that purport to do that, but any extra money should be found and targeted directly at those households. And people like you and me shouldn't be getting fuel subsidies right now, Jim. I would wholly agree with you. Chris, I did a presentation with you um, this morning and um, you you put up a slide that I found absolutely fascinating 
Um, and that is a slide of OECD global house prices and Irish house prices superimposed um, and going back a number of years. And to me, it was an incredible graph. And before uh, I hand back to you to let you talk about that, um, I, I noticed today that in the United States, the Case-Shiller 20 city house price index, which is a pretty good gauge on what's happening property markets in the 20 largest cities in the United States, um, the annual rate of house price inflation in those 20 cities fell to the lowest level in May. And the reasons for that would be there's a low level of inventory, there's fast turnaround and higher mortgage rates are starting to bite. Okay, there's a number of factors pushing markets in both directions, but the bias is a little bit on the downside at the moment. But while it's the lowest rate of annual increase since May, it's still in November stood at an incredibly strong 18.3%. So the notion that Ireland is the only country in the world which some of our populist politicians and commentators would have us believe that is experiencing rapid house price inflation and a housing crisis simply does not stand up. House prices everywhere under significant upward pressure at the moment. Ireland ain't unique, and I think it's important for people to recognise that. But talk to us about the um, OECD graph you used this morning. Yeah, it's an interesting chart. It started in, I think, 1975, taking us up to the most recent data, which would have been towards the end of last year. And it showed that uh, Irish house prices, unsurprisingly, were more volatile in the noughties. That was the big boom and bust that we all lived through. But over time, the correlation between world house prices and Irish house prices is very high. And for that period, 1975 up to the most recent past, uh, Irish house prices and world house prices on this chart, at least using the OECD data, uh, look now to be roughly or if not exactly the same. That makes a particular point that you could make in all sorts of different ways about many economic variables. This one is about house prices. And that is a small open economy that is heavily influenced by the global stage, by global factors, uh, things like house prices and lots of other variables, economic variables at least, uh, are outside our domestic control. That's not to say that we don't have domestic influence. The experience of the noughties clearly demonstrates that we do. But particularly over the long haul, it's probably the international environment rather than the domestic one that counts for a small, open, globalized economy. And inflation and house prices are two sides of the same coin here in that I could make the same remarks about Irish inflation. We could do an awful lot domestically about Irish prices generally, but an awful lot is determined on the global stage when it comes to Irish prices. So if you think that the single most important indicator of the housing crisis, as it is called in Ireland, is the house price, then high house prices indicating crisis levels um, are, as you say, a global phenomenon. All economies, all developed economies at least, have this problem to a greater or lesser extent. And the most successful economies, of which Ireland is clearly one, has this problem to the greater extent. So if you then think about policy seriously, and I'm currently in a country, the UK, for example, that no longer thinks about economic policy seriously at all. And this is where populism will take you. It'll take you into performative politics. It'll take you into the utmost unseriousness when it comes to thinking deeply 
about difficult problems like housing, like health, like education, and the myriad factors that can and do affect these things, uh, populism will take you away from thinking about these things in any kind of serious way and in any way that will make a difference. So if you think about house prices in Ireland, there are domestic factors, there are global factors. You can do something domestically, but it's going to be a much more difficult task than populist politicians, posturing politicians, seem to think that it will be. And in many ways, there's not a lot that Ireland can do about its own domestic prices. There are some things it can do. There are some things that you are doing. And and I also see another headline in today's uh, media, I think it was the Irish Times, saying that house building is getting close to Celtic Tiger levels again. And so those are the sorts of things that that Ireland can and should be doing and clearly is doing. But if you think that, um, as our economics colleague David McWilliams, again in the Irish Times today, uh, with a report about a conversation he had with uh, their eco- the Irish Times economics guru, Cliff Taylor, in which he, uh, certainly according to the story, uh, said that McWilliams supports Sinn Féin's uh, stance on this and thinks that Sinn Féin will be very, very good for housing. I just wonder whether either Mr McWilliams or Sinn Féin are the serious policy thinkers that uh, will solve this problem and I doubt very much if they if they do think it's a simple enough problem to crack, um, whether they do have the the, the policy tools uh, and willingness to to implement those tools. And indeed, because it is this global phenomenon, whether they actually, with the best intentions, nevertheless, don't have the ability to fully deal with this problem. Because as I say, it's it's a myriad myriad of factors that that cause these that cause, certainly cause high house prices. Low interest rates are one, and there's not a lot Ireland can do about that, um, and so on. So I, I do think that this is one area that is is incredibly complex, is far simpler than populist politicians in many jurisdictions make them out to be, and they are not amenable to easy and, in particular, short-term solutions. These sorts of things require many years of difficult policy choices, um, many years of proper thinking and realization that you can have the same problem caused by different factors at different points in time. Inflation is one of those. Um, At some point in time, inflation can be caused by commodity prices. It can be caused at another time by the behavior of wages. At another time, it can be caused by too much money being printed by the central bank. It all depends. And what I don't see, as I say, I don't see it at all anywhere in any form of economic policymaking in the UK. And the danger for you guys in Ireland is that if you do go down this populist path of saying, yep, the answer to our problems is to elect a government that says it can do something about them in a very straightforward sort of way, and that government's going to be called Sinn Féin. I do think you're going to be severely disappointed. As you say, uh, the level of house building here, you know, is, is now reaching pre-Celtic Tiger or Celtic Tiger levels. So uh, the housing supply thing is starting to improve um, quite significantly, but probably not quickly enough. Um, I believe that in 2021, um, the value of mortgage drawdowns um, is going to hit the highest level since 2008. That's around 10.5 billion. Uh, But it's interesting that in 2008, the market was valued at 23 billion. So we're we're looking at a mortgage market of 10.5 billion 
compared to the, the last highest level of 23 billion in 2008. And of course, in 2011, um, the value of mortgages fell to 2.4 billion. So what, what's happening, you know, the metrics on the housing market are improving. You know, housing supply is starting to gradually get better. Um, mortgage availability is gradually getting better. Um, but I, I, I think you can't, you know, stand in the way of these global forces that are having much more of an impact on our housing market than domestic forces. So um, it'll be it'll be really interesting to see after the next election, you know, how this actually transpires. Um, as you know, Chris, I am from the southeast, uh, the Waterford part of the southeast. Um, I saw an interesting press release in the last 24 hours um, from Rosslare Port showing that there's been a five-fold increase in European freight volumes passing through the port of Rosslare. Um, they have added 24 direct ferry routes to Europe since 2020. And um, the UK land bridge is being increasingly bypassed by Irish exporters as a result of Brexit. So it, it is good to see um, Irish business, the Irish export sector, and indeed the Irish port sector responding to the challenges posed by Brexit in such a significant way in such a relatively short period of time. So it's, it's great to see this happening and it just shows that the Irish economy, Irish businesses will continue to adjust to the Brexit-related environment and difficulties that have been created. And it brings me back to something I think I spoke about in this podcast before, which is an area of some controversy. Um, you know, there are plans to build some sort of motorway from Cork to Limerick. And anybody who's driven from Cork to Limerick or the other way uh, would recognize that it is one of the worst and most dangerous roads in the country. It does need to be upgraded. But I have always argued that it would be much more appropriate to actually build a motorway from Limerick to the southeast, specifically to Ross Lair, because Ross Lair is going to become an increasingly important part of Ireland's export infrastructure. And the link to Cork should be around care on the existing motorway. This is getting very parochial for you, Chris, but um, I, I, I think it's, it's an interesting development given um, the prominence of Ross Lair at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, of course, that one of the destinations for all those lorries, indeed all those people, uh, for many years has been ports in Wales from Rosslare. That's where the land bridge starts. And the flip side to what you're saying is that reports coming out of Wales are that lorry traffic, and of course you would expect this given what you've just said about the diminishing importance of the land bridge, ports in Wales are reporting huge drops in ferry traffic to the point where uh, the ferry companies, Stenner at least, has been asked, are you still committed to these routes uh, between Wales and Ireland? And Stenner have said that they are. This is a point about adaptability. Economies do adapt and change as a result of economic policy changes. The biggest uh, economic policy changes produce the biggest consequences of all. And that brings me back to my general point about economic policy will always have consequences our very first point is that it'll have very difficult to forecast consequences, but economic policy is consequential and Brexit is going to be, already is, and it will continue to grow 
to being very, very consequential. It, it doesn't happen overnight. We're only a, a relatively short number of years into this now, um, and it is gradually growing. You can see the different sectors of the economy adjusting, adapting. And in your case, you're seeing that ferry traffic being diverted. Wales is seeing the other side of that coin. And the British economy as a whole is also seeing that in that economic activity is lower than would otherwise be the case. And there have been massive queues because of checks at Dover between um, across the English Channel. And all that's going on in the background. While Britain is consumed by the performative politics of the question over parties at Downing Street, um, we have the situation now where the, the only way in which the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, can, sur can survive is if he can convince the British people that he is, in fact, quite stupid. So stupid that he can't recognise a party when he sees one and that he genuinely didn't know that uh, wine, beer, sausage rolls didn't constitute a party. So it's, it's unseriousness uh, of the most serious kind. And there are economic consequences of this. This is the man that is now supposed to be leading Britain's response to the Russian crisis, to the cost of living crisis. And policy is being made up on the hoof. Uh, we have a populist government that does what populist governments do. They've delivered a populist policy Brexit, which is very, very consequential. Um, they're trying to fund healthcare and the Nas National Health Service with a tax rise in two months' time, that there's now rampant speculation that they're going to cancel that tax rise because it's unpopular. This is what populists do. And my warning to you, Jim, is that if you do elect a bunch of populists, expect some more of the same. Thank you, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.